Pound the Rock is brought to you by the Score Bet. That's right. We brought you the best sports media app. Now we're bringing you the best sports book and casino. Now live in Ontario. The Score Bet offers a safe and secure mobile sports book experience with both pregame and in-play markets. But best of all, it's integrated into the Score and our content to give you the easiest and most seamless sports betting experience. Download now on iOS and Android. Available in Ontario only. Must be 19 years of age or older to participate. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call Connects Ontario at 1-866-531-2600. Hello there and welcome to Pound the Rock, the Scores NBA podcast. I am Joe Wolfond and Cash, we made it. We made it. Two teams left. The finals are here, and meeting in those finals, the Boston Celtics and the Golden State Warriors, as I think we have kind of been expecting pretty much after the Warriors ran roughshod over the Mavs in game one of that series, I have felt like this was the direction it was headed, and it certainly got hairy there for the Celtics for a minute at the tail end of game seven. I was surprised enough that Miami managed to win that game six on the road. And surprise doesn't even begin to describe how I was feeling in the final three minutes as I watched that Celtics lead evaporate amid a series of confounding decisions, but also just missed shots and a really spirited push from a Heat team that I think has defied a lot of my expectations We'll obviously spend part of this episode talking about the finals, uh, a healthy part of it. But I also thought, I mean, the last time we talked, both the Heat and the Mavs were still alive in the postseason. So now that they've been eliminated, uh, I wanted to see, you know, did you have any final thoughts on the way those team seasons ended, about what's ahead for them, their off seasons? Like we can do a little bit of of a postmortem for those eliminated teams if you'd like. Yeah, I mean... Since you brought up the Heat defying your expectations and kind of showing that resiliency, that Heat culture, if you will, in the last couple of games, we can start with them. Look, they finished with the number one seed in the East, despite a ton of injuries and um, lineup changes throughout the year, rotation changes in typical Heat fashion. You know, a couple of guys that were hidden gems that they found and and Max Struess and Gabe Vincent, who started kind of giving them some minutes last year, turned into like bonafide rotation guys for them this year and both gave them really good minutes and were really key to their run this year. Like they they had a very Heat-esque year from that perspective, like organizationally. And if you look at the team they put together, I know they won't admit this, but if you look at the team they put together and you had asked us at the beginning of the year, the Heat are going to finish with the number one seed and then get to a game seven of the East finals and have a chance in the last couple of minutes to get to the finals, we both would have said that sounds about right, if not slightly overachieving, to be honest with you. So overall, I think it's hard to say they didn't have a great year, especially given some of the injuries and things they had to overcome. Now, having said all that, there are some concerns, I'd say, going forward when you look at the fact that Kyle Lowry, though he did start showing signs of life for sure in those last two games, and the hope, obviously, from Miami's side will be that it was just, you know, he had hurt his hamstring, and if he gets a, another full summer to, like, rehab or just get back to peak physical form, he can still be 
a very valuable, positive, winning contributor next season, as he was for points of this season. And he can still address some of the issues they have offensively and that and blah, blah, blah. But at the end of the day, Kyle Lowry is also, you know, in his late 30s now, though. And as I've said with so many other players we've talked about over the years, like it's, you know, LeBron James is obviously in a class of his own as this kind of like freakish specimen that you cannot compare his late career trajectory to anyone else for the most part for for mere mortals even great ones like Kyle Lowry or insert any other veteran player you cannot expect them to get better at this stage of their career or to get healthier or to get more durable it's very rare that that happens so while the heat can definitely talk themselves into you know it's just the hamstring and if he's healthy for for you for a full year and maybe isn't dealing with some of the um off-court things that were going on this year that kept him out personal reasons that he'll be fine but the thing is, what is the definition of fine for Kyle Lowry at this stage of his career? And that's what should concern them because Kyle Lowry at this stage of his career with some of the limitations naturally that come physically with an undersized point guard at this stage in their career, I don't think can address all of the offensive issues they hoped he could address when they brought him in. And they do owe him you know, about $58 million guaranteed over the next two seasons. They do still have to... Uh, I extend Tyler Hero and if not I guess deal with his restricted free agency next summer there are some decisions to be made there but as much as I, I saw a bunch of people after the heat lost talking about you know the motivation for guys like Pat Riley or Jimmy Butler to find ways to continue to get this team better and closer to winning a championship it's just so much easier said than done and when you look at the money tied up and Kyle Lowry's age and even Jimmy Butler's not getting any younger I I don't necessarily see this as a team on the rise. Like, okay, they got to the East final game seven and they're knocking on the door and they'll be right back there next year. They could be, but they are also built in a way where it could go downhill much easier than it could go uphill. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're very much built for the present, obviously. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned Lowry's age. I mean, he's going to turn 37 next season. PJ Tucker is going to turn 38 and there aren't really or haven't been to this point any durability concerns with that dude. Like he just plays every single game pretty much every single year and honestly hasn't seemed to lose very much at all. Like I think this was the best season of his career, like his age 37 Mm -hmm. season where his defense was pretty much as good as it's ever been. And offensively he found or at least got to display all these different previously unseen elements of skill like his short roll game you know his ability to hit floaters and make plays on the short roll like he showed some connective passing and some cutting like he was more than just a stationary corner three-point shooter in that heat offense and I thought that was really interesting but again everybody has a shelf life and maybe it's easier for a, a low usage role player like PJ Tucker to age gracefully and not show those signs of decline but there's a reason i say this team is built to to win now like tucker lowry those guys were hugely important contributors to this team and like you say you don't expect them to get better Uh, at best you hope they plateau and don't get worse exactly and i it's hard to know what to make of that if we're talking about butler because he really did elevate his game to a level I mean, we saw it at points in the bubble, but if you take his postseason as a whole, despite the two and a half stinkers that he put up, probably because of the injury that he was dealing with in the conference finals, like even taking that into account, 
I think on the whole, this was the best postseason he's ever played. Like, and maybe the best stretch of basketball period that he's ever played. So you look at him and you're like, okay, he's got kind of a lot of miles on his body, you know, Tibbs miles on his body. And he's going into his age 33 season. You would probably say the same thing about him, but I think it's hard to put anything past him or, or, harbor any sense of doubt about what he's capable of after watching him do what he just did. And after watching, you know, that team looked dead in the water to me, man. Like they looked out of answers in terms of like their ability to solve Boston's defense. And that remained true to a certain extent. Like they did not crack some kind of code offensively. Like they did get better at scoring the basketball, mainly because of Butler's transcendence. But for the most part, I think they were able to get that close because their defense was magnificent but those two performances that Butler put up after he was injured like he didn't have any answers for the Celtics defense what he came up with in those last two games was staggering to me so dude that game six performance was one of the greatest individual playoff performances I've ever seen agreed it was unreal and he you know almost almost capped it with what would have been an even more memorable uh, performance in game seven if he had managed to knock down that three. And um, I, I do you want to get into talking about like whether that three was warranted or not? Because I feel like that's been a big part of the discourse, which is maybe a reason that we don't have to engage in yeah, it because it's look, already been talked to death. Look, I mean, it's easy for me to say in hindsight, like, you know, if it was me or if I had my preference, he gets to the hole and, and gets two puts two points on the board. But I don't know, man. It was it was a pretty good look from a guy who, though he's not like historically a consistent jump shooter, has has gotten hot with his jump shot at times before and has been shooting the had been shooting the lights out these last couple of games. Like it's easy to quibble with if you want to play the percentages, but I actually think I, if you play the percentages, it's it, that shot is more likely to produce a, no, a Miami victory than that, that's fine. Yeah, and to that point too, it's like. Given all you have just said about Jimmy Butler and what we just said about his last two performances, where they were in that game, the run they were on, you know, also to your point about playing the percentages, that's probably the best shot in terms of optimizing the chances they win. Yeah, obviously they could have won in overtime, but I would have still taken the Celtics in overtime. Um, So all that said, I think it, it made sense why he took it. I understand it. And again, based on everything we were saying about Jimmy Butler in that game in the last two games in general what he's done for the heat in postseason settings i think he earned the right almost and like the trust and the belief in his decision making there where if he thought that was the best option for him and the team like you do have to live and die with it and i'm completely okay with it yeah i mean the only other thing the the only other thought that i had about it was i was really struck by how similar it was in terms of how the play unfolded and the game situation to the layup that he hit against the Raptors at the end of <clears throat> game seven in the East semis a couple of years ago, I guess three years ago now where down two has the ball on the break, basically with only one guy in front of him. In that case, it was Serge Ibaka in this case, Al Horford. And obviously in that game, it, it was, I, I think he hit that layup with what, like four seconds left on the clock, right? Four and change. Yeah. Just under five. And this was more like 16, 17 seconds. But apart from that, it's like pretty much the exact same situation. So on the one hand, you could be like, well, look, like he hit that layup when he went to the basket and he tied the game. 
but they lost. They lost that game at the buzzer, you know? And I just, I just wonder if that memory was in the back of his mind at all. If yeah, just I'm, even a faint glimmer in the back of his mind, remembering that play and deciding to pull up for the three instead and go for the win. Man, it's human nature. I would argue that anyone involved in that game seven, especially who was wearing a Sixers uniform, will have that memory and everything that played out in those final few minutes and seconds ingrained in their minds forever, or at least for the rest of their playing careers. And I, I think it's human nature to only have those things creep into your mind when you're facing a very similar situation a few years later. The one thing I'd say as much as I agree with that, and I, I think he probably was thinking about that, Yes, you could look at it and be like, he did that, he hit the layup, and they still lost the buzzer. But the flip side to that is like, he did that, and it took like one of the most miraculous four-bounce shots in NBA history for them to lose at the buzzer. Like, he had put them in a very, very good position to play an extra five minutes. Yeah, but I think, I think you know, to your point, I think he, he had played the full 48 in this game, so I don't know how yeah. much he would have had left to play a yeah. five-minute overtime and, and win it. So, um, all of which is to say, just... Huge credit to the Heat, a Heat team that I have. It's funny, I, I rode a bit of a roller coaster with this team because I feel like I came into the season actually higher on them than consensus. Where, like, if you remember when we did our over unders before the season started, they were like one of my most confident bets to go over their projected win total. And I felt very strongly that they were going to be a top three seed in the East, which I don't feel like was actually a, a common sentiment. And right out of the gate, their defense looked incredible. I wrote about it. You know, we devoted like half of a podcast episode to talking about it so it's not that I wasn't high on them but as the season progressed and I, I started to have these concerns about their half-court offense I, I just really started to have doubts about their viability in the playoffs in terms of like going deep and like meaningfully contending for the title where not that I didn't think that they could do it but I thought it was more of like an outside chance and certainly in the series against Boston and especially, you know, dealing with the kind of injuries they were dealing with, I just it, in no way thought that it was going to be as close as it was. So I guess, you know, the, the question I'm left with is like, was that their best chance? You know, like, has their window, like this iteration of the team with Butler in his prime, like, was that the best chance they're going to have? Was that as close as they're going to come? Is that window now closed a little bit more than it was a few days ago? Because you don't expect, you know, Lowry, Butler, Tucker to improve, right? You're like, you're not banking on, and I don't even know if you, especially with Lowry, right? Like, I don't even know if you can bank on those guys sustaining their current level of play. So I'm looking at like Bam and Hero as the young guys who you can safely assume will get better, but will they get better enough to actually kind of like pick up the slack if those guys start to decline? And I'm not saying it can't happen. Like those are, those are two very talented young players. But to me, like the defensive limitations with Hero and some of the offensive limitations with Bam make me feel like maybe there's a bit of a ceiling on how good they can actually get and makes me feel to, a little bit like they're incredible complementary pieces, but not necessarily the type that can become, you know, foundational stars that are going to be able to to carry this team if there is like significant slippage with the older contingent. So I I completely agree with that sentiment about both Hero and Bam and I think that also makes it 
much more damaging that Duncan Robinson's time in Miami has gone the way it has now gone, yeah. where like he's falling out of the rotation. At times, had fallen right out of the rotation. Remember, they they owe this guy fifty three million dollars over the next three years. Uh, there's a there's another year on it after that, but it's partially guaranteed, so not counting that. But just over the next three seasons, they owe him roughly fifty three million dollars, which. At, at his best and when he's been most valuable to Miami, you can easily say, well, that's fine. But if he is going to be limited in the ways he was limited this year because of his defense and because of some of the other guys, like we mentioned, Strews, Vincent, whoever coming up and he's taking up, you know, nearly approximately 18 to $20 million a year on your cap sheet. While you've got Bam at, on the contract he is and Hero on whatever's about to happen with him, extension-wise or whatever, with their limitations, like then you, the, the, it it just makes it so much more damaging because the money that you're going to have committed to three guys who are limited in their own ways, you just can't have that while trying to build a consistent contending core. So there's trouble there. I know we, we've said this so many times in Miami, and seriously, like they're, they've pulled rabbits out of a hat so many times because it just ends up a guy like Jimmy Butler says, you know what? I want to play in Miami. We're going to find a way to make it happen. So I've learned time and time again to not doubt Pat Riley's Miami Heat when it comes to that. But yeah. at a at a certain point, I feel like you gotta you're gonna run out of hats to pull rabbits out of, right? Like at a certain point, if you're so capped out or, or paying so many limited guys and your best players are aging out, like there's only so much smoke and so many mirrors you can play with here. Yeah. Um and I think like I don't know if they have enough ammo to swing a, a blockbuster trade for like a star, you know what I mean? But if like you're suggesting there is a, let's take Zach Levine, for instance, Zach Levine says I'm out and I want to go to Miami, make a sign and trade happen. Then suddenly, you know, if Chicago's faced with the prospect of losing Levine for nothing like Levine would have to agree to a sign and trade for them to get anything back, right? So then maybe Tyler Hero as a return starts to look somewhat palatable, you know, in exactly. a way that it wouldn't otherwise. That's that's kind of the hope, I think, for Miami because outside of that, I'm not sure they can actually get that kind of a deal done. But yeah, I mean, I think it's going to be interesting to see where it goes because I do expect that the defense is going to remain exceptional. Between... Butler, Bam, even PJ, who, like I said, I don't think has shown a whole lot of slippage at the defensive end of the floor. Spolstra's ingenuity and like the, I'm actually curious to, you know, do, do they bring back Oladipo? I thought he was a sneakily important part of that playoff run for them. And I know like the jump shot is still super shaky, but at least in terms of like the, the off the dribble juice coming back a bit, his ability to get into the teeth of the defense, like get to the rim. I feel like that's a player who like they can look at and be like, this is somebody who can be part of our playoff rotation. Who's going to give us two way balance, which is what they need. Yep. Like they need to find ways to juice their offense without compromising that defense. And I think that's going to be really, really difficult for them to do, especially, you know, Lowry just like bouncing back and being the exact same version of himself that he was during this regular season would go a, a long, long way. Cause I think for the most part, he was the player that they signed him to be this season. But I, I just think there are a lot of questions. And I think it's it's very likely, uh, in spite of all the rabbits that had been pulled out of hats <laughs> in the past, that th- that this was the last best crack Butler's Miami Heat will ultimately get. But 
I've been burned for for doubting this team, for doubting Butler and Eric Spolstra in that front office before. And again, I certainly wouldn't put anything past any of them and wouldn't be surprised if they were to swing a big trade or if they were to just like run back the same group and Jerry rig a 55 win season again and wind up in the yeah. same place. Like they're, I think they're great talent identifiers. Uh, they're creative and they have an amazing player development program, obviously. Mm-hmm. So I, I feel like they'll find a way they'll find a way to remain competitive. Will they find a way to get back to, you know, game seven of the East finals or get over that hump that I am just a little bit more skeptical about, but uh Again, I do think so much of it just comes down to like the development of of Bam and Hero. If Hero's still there, you know, as opposed to being a trade chip. But yeah. uh, I feel like Bam's just got to be in the gym working on his short roll game and like his pick and pop game pretty much all summer. I feel like that would unlock so much for him and for that offense. Agreed. Um, I, I have a lot less to say about Dallas and I would... I do kind of want to speed us along and get to a bit of a finals preview. So I I would just say, look, I think obviously huge strides for that organization this season. I mean, just like Luca hadn't been out of the first round before. Right. And I don't think he needed to prove anything about his Mm -hmm. playoff bona fides, like his ability to be the best player on a series winning team, you know, contending team. Like I think he had kind of proven that already in the way that he'd performed in the playoffs. They just happened to run into like a really, really good Clippers team two years in a row. But I thought this, I mean, just for him to actually do it and to, you know, knock off a 64 win Suns team in the process just felt really monumental. Now, does that mean that they've like, you know, taken this step and it's just going to be smooth sailing from here. And like, it's, no. a, you know, like it's, uh, I'm not saying this is going to be, you know, a redux of like this year's Hawks or anything like that. I'm just saying, I think we've seen in the past, a team can have a breakthrough like this. And it's not necessarily an indication that, that this is what the expectation should be, or this is what's going to happen in the future. Because I, I think there are still a lot of things that need to get sorted out with that roster. And I just don't actually know what they can do apart from like internal development to improve the team in the next couple of years. Dude, they've got more than a hundred million dollars committed two years from now, 2023, 2024. And that doesn't include Jalen Brunson's next contract. If it ends up being in Dallas, they can't trade a first rounder until at least 2025 right now. And they also don't have any extra picks. Like they don't Mm. own uh, one single extra pick in either the first or second round for the next however many years. So their options are very limited. And this goes back to, look, the, the Mavs proved me wrong in a lot of ways this year in their overall performance. Obviously, I'll admit that. But the reason I maintain the the whole thing of like the, the general roster construction and building around Luka, when I said at the beginning of the year that they're kind of failing him, the reason I maintain that throughout the year is because I still come back to like what this roster is. The fact that there is not nearly enough overall talent here to consistently contend for a championship and that they have these limited avenues to do it. Now, getting off the Porzingis contract and making the moves they did, I thought obviously helped. And I think they did find something when it comes to a recipe for success. Surround Luka with shooting, cobble together a solid defense. In that respect, 
Jason Kidd, Sean Sweeney, the coaching staff, um, the team obviously had to execute it. They did. They found a good defense, finished seventh in defensive efficiency. And again, once they made the Porzingis trade, they brought in Dinwiddie for some secondary creation, extra ball handling. They surrounded Luka with shooters. That recipe worked. I think they have found the recipe, but they still haven't found the overall talent. And they do not really have the means to find it. So it goes back to the end of last season when they lost in the first round again and Luka had to do so much and he wore down as the playoff, as that first round series went on. And I said at the time, you know, it's still early enough in Luka's career where there should be no panic and they're going to have him for however many years on, under team control. So it's not at all like they're close to panic mode. But you also don't want to waste the head start that just having a player as transcendent as Luka gives you. And though the fact they made it to the conference finals might not seem like they are wasting that head start that he's giving them, I still maintain that they are wasting it based on what's here and what can potentially come. So it's just hard for me to see this in as positive a light as it should be seen, given that they overachieved, given that they got to the conference finals, given Luke had the playoffs, like all of it. I get it. It's happy times, but I'm having a hard time buying into the optimism of it all when I don't see a team that's really ascending at the same rate they should be with a guy like Luka Doncic and again in a Western conference that this was really a down year for the West in terms of overall not talent but well talent too but in terms of overall like number of true contenders and well obviously you know things happen in the NBA not every team is gonna be healthy next year there should be more great teams in the West next year than there were this year so not trying to kind of poo-poo on everything the Mavs did this season but the same time I kind of am because I don't see them on this kind of meteoric rise that it might seem like given the way their season ultimately went yeah I don't disagree with that I just want to point out and this is specific to just what you were saying about the West next season and yeah like we expect the Nuggets to be back healthy next year the Clippers to be back healthy but some team's gonna fall out of the mix like some team is gonna get beset by injuries like unexpected shit is going to happen. And I I only say this because I feel like it happens every year where people are like, oh, like the, the West is going to be way tougher next year. Or like, the, you know, the East is up and coming, all these, you know, and it's like, I do think the like the West in terms of like top-down quality isn't quite as strong as it's been in past years. But I, just, I don't think it's like, oh, okay, well, like the Clippers are back next year and the Nuggets are back next year. So like, good luck contending in that conference. Like, I think, the Mavs will have about the same chances of contending in that conference as they had in this one, you know, because like, like what are the Suns going to be next year? I guess would be a question that I would have, you know, like what are the Warriors going to be next year? Like there are teams that are again, either going to age out or like just have something happen. That's going to derail their season where, I mean, that could be Dallas, like that that could happen to Dallas, but uh, I don't think like their odds going into next year's Western conference are like significantly worse than they were in this conference. Um, and something could happen in the offseason that changes that. Uh, but I do feel like we're just kind of in a period right now where there's a little bit more parity. We talked about this throughout this season, you know, like I feel... We're in the late 70s. A little bit. Like, look at the finals, man. It's a 53-win team and a 51-win team. Like, mm-hmm. that's... And even just if you look at the variety of teams that have been in the finals the last three to four seasons, it is actually very much like that late 70s run, which was really the only time in league history that there were, yeah. there was true parity and a variety of teams in the finals. Well, I think it's eight different teams, in, or sorry, seven, because the Warriors right. made it in 2019, in but seven, seven different teams in the last four finals. So that gives you a sense of, of the kind of balance that we have in the league right now. And 
like I said, I, just because the Mavs had success in the playoffs this year, that's like not a guarantee of future success. But I, I'm not looking at it and being like, that was as far as they were going to get. Uh, and I'm, I'm also, you know, I know we've had this conversation in the past. We had it earlier this season, but I, I don't see it as like failing Luca because I don't think that they have actually done anything particularly wrong. Like I, the Porzingis thing didn't work out. Mm-hmm. but the you know I, I don't think it was the wrong thing to do to like take a swing on him necessarily i mean like character concerns aside which is a whole other can of worms right. but like in terms of the on-court fit with Doncic and like the idea behind what they were trying to build with those two guys i don't think that was necessarily wrong-headed it went sideways they kind of rectified it uh in, in a way that frankly like i was skeptical about at the time but like worked out very well and Obviously, I think they're going to make every effort to bring back Brunson. I feel like he's going to wind up on basically the, you know, the Fred Van Vliet, Malcolm Brogdon contract, like four years, 85 million, something in that ballpark. That to me feels like one of the biggest locks of the offseason that that's that's the contract he's going to get. And he deserves that, but it will. I think it should haunt the Mavs that they didn't want to give him the four years, 55 and a half million that he uh, that they could have given him last summer and that he was ready to take, according to Tim McMahon's reporting a couple months ago, and that Brunson was w- still willing to take as recently as January of this past season, mm. which is pro- it's going to end up being like about $30 million less, maybe more, than he's actually going to end up getting. They weren't willing to give it to him as recently as this January because that would have kept them from being able to include him in a potential deal at the deadline for like a star, if that and materialized. When it, and, and I do understand that. I'm just saying it, it'll end up haunting. I'm not saying they weren't justified in their reasoning. I'm just saying it could end up haunting them now because obviously he's going to get way more than that. And um, it'll be interesting to see too if it's created any kind of ill will between him yeah. and and the franchise. They they then did try to, according to McMahon, they did then try to turn around after the trade deadline and say, okay, we're ready to give you that, you know, four, 55, five now. And Brunson very understandably said, no, thanks. Yeah, I mean, I don't think it's a big deal. I kind of understand their reluctance after how poorly he played in the playoffs last year. They gave him a chance to prove it, and he proved it. He played like a star in the playoffs this year. So as long as they bring him back, then I don't really see the issue. And if whether it's keeping him around and him continuing continuing to develop and just being like that kind of secondary ball handler that Luka needs next to him in the way that we saw this postseason, then I think that's a good outcome. Or if they decide that their path to getting a better co-star for Luca is to trade him, then I think it actually might wind up being more beneficial for them to have him on this contract where it's going to be easier to match salaries with another team than if he was on, you know, like the 14 million a year type of deal that they didn't sign him to earlier. So I, I don't think it's going to be a, really an issue one way or another. And they also signed Finney Smith to a great extension. Like their, their core pieces are pretty much, locked in i feel like you're just not good enough (laughs) well like i don't know what's the area that you would look at and be like they need to upgrade it and like how would they do it i feel like the center spot is probably the 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 easiest most obvious one right and it's like okay maybe gobert's out there maybe ayton's out there but how do they get one of those guys without putting someone like brunson on the table and then suddenly you've created this other hole i i do think it's i do think it's also ironic that the two guys that they've been linked to most are the two guys that they eliminated from the playoffs eliminated and 
you know, not completely played off the court, or, but they did, the two guys whose effectiveness they did help reduce in the two series. Now with Gobert, it had more to do with the, the defensive sieves in front of him, but I think it, that was, uh, it's, that was it's ironic to Phoenix me. too, man. Like, I think, no, it's both. true. Also ironic. The fact if, if they were to now reunite or not reunite, but if they were to unite Aiton and Luca, you know, after the sun's draft catastrophe a couple years ago, that would also be chef's kiss. But anyway, yeah, the center spot, obviously. And also the secondary creator score role. Look, I know Brunson performed like a star in the playoffs. I think he's going to be worth the money he gets, but if Jalen Brunson is your second best offensive player, I do not think you're winning a championship. And that's even with Luca being as good as he is. I, I don't agree. Because they didn't they didn't lose the Western Conference Finals because their offense wasn't good enough. They had a 112 offensive rating in the West Finals against a really good Warriors defense. Like I think their offense was fine. And, and I think their defense was really good for most of the postseason. They just got beat by a really, really good offensive team. Like that's that's kind of all it came down to for me. So they got beat by a team that was much more talented. Yes, but like I just don't look at that and say, okay, they lost because Brunson was their second best no, offensive I'm, player. I'm not you saying that's I mean? why they lost, but I'm also saying they cannot, they will not and cannot win a championship if he is their second best offensive player. He I mean, is not good enough to be that guy. He, and he's a good player. He played like it in the playoffs. Like this dude in the playoffs averaged almost 22 points, shot over 50% from two point range, you know, 35% from three, which wasn't fantastic, but he, shot 80% from the line, got there five times a game. I mean, as a secondary scorer, like, and a guy who I thought displayed, like, quite a lot of juice off of the bounce, like, in that Utah series, when Doncic was out, like, he was a primary guy, and he was just destroying Utah's defense at the point of attack. And, yeah, we know that that says a lot about Utah's defense at the point of attack as well, but I thought what Brunson did this postseason was perfectly acceptable for a secondary offensive option and i think i agree on a team that i i don't think could have possibly got any further yeah this is what i take issue with like they couldn't possibly have gotten any further i don't i don't agree with that like they didn't they were soundly outplayed to be sure but to say that they couldn't possibly have gotten any further i don't agree man like like they had a huge lead in game two that Credit to the Warriors, they came back and won. Like that, you can't discount the fact that that happened and just say, well, the Mavs built a huge lead, so they should have won that game. That's not how these things work. But it's not like they didn't belong. It's not like they were totally embarrassed and like that the Warriors were a better team, but they're not in like a completely different class, in my opinion. I think there is like a way that that series could have played out where it would have been a lot closer and. You know, if Dallas had shot the ball better in some of those games, then like maybe we're talking about them swinging another upset. Like I think we we get a, we get very fixated on results sometimes, and I just don't. Uh, I, I think the secondary ball handler thing is like a little bit overstated at this point, especially with you know the way that I know Din, Dinwiddie was super inconsistent throughout the playoffs, but but he, but his, okay, so his his highs were pretty high as well. Like with him there so and with Brunson Mike, there. So my question to you, and I'm assuming the answer is yes, based on the way this conversation is going, is do you think if Jalen Brunson and Spencer Dinwiddie were Dallas's second and third best players, or at least second and third best offensive players, they can credibly go into a season saying they can win the championship? 
I think that they can credibly go into next season, like with this exact same roster saying they can win the championship. I might slot them behind like four or five other teams in terms of the likelihood of that happening. But again, we're talking about a league where there's a, there's a lot of balance where the teams at the top don't necessarily like separate themselves by some huge margin. Like it's not as top heavy as it used to be in a balanced field like that. When things come down to matchups and who hits their shots at the right time, like, yeah, I think you could definitely make a case that Dallas is going to be a contender next year. And I started this conversation by saying, hey, just because they got to the West Finals this year, like doesn't mean they can like rest on their laurels or just expect a similar outcome next year. But at the same time, I think the formula that they found this season, I think at both ends of the floor, is one that they can replicate. And I do think it would be great to see them upgrade at the five spot. I don't see a way that they can do that without compromising some other aspect of their roster. So, you know, I do think they're like a tad bit stuck where they are, but uh, I'm not burying them and saying, no, that series against the Warriors was evidence that like they're so far away and that they can't win. That's, that's not where I'm at with them. Um, Are you, are you going to leave that there though? We should probably talk finals a bit. So uh, let's take a quick break. Uh, We'll come back and we will break that matchup down. What's up, Pound the Rock listeners? Just a friendly reminder to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. You can also check out the Score's Fantasy Football Podcast with Justin Boone. And in case you haven't already, download the Score app, available on iPhone and Android. That's where you can find all of our feature content, as well as live scores, updates, and breaking news. And don't forget to check out The Score's YouTube page for an informative yet lighthearted dive into the sports world's trending topics. Now back to the show. Okay, Cash. Um, obviously, what we ought to be doing on this episode is, is talking about the finals between the Celtics and Warriors. I do sort of feel like, as always, like we're going to get into this series and there's going to be so much other stuff to talk about. And like a lot of our talking points are either going to be moot or they will have changed. Like it's... I'm hesitant to go like too deep uh, into the weeds when we're doing preview stuff just because of how quickly this stuff changes. Yeah. So the way that I wanted to do it was just basically go back and forth with the things that we're going to be watching for in the finals, whether it's a, a matchup thing, an individual player, a tactical thing, whatever it is. I said we were going to do two each. So I'll start with you. What's the number one thing that you're going to be watching for in the finals? All right. Well, first of all, I we've talked about this a bit off air. I do want to say people should be prepared for what could be a defensive slog of a series because I think people can like they look at these two teams and they see a lot of the star talent that is there in the offensive firepower and think, especially say in comparison to that Boston Miami series, that it's going to be this really great basketball. And I I think it's going to be. I think the basketball as a whole is going to be great and it's going to be two teams executing really well, but on both ends of the court. But you also have to remember this is the first time in 26 years since Bulls Sonics in 1996 that these are the top two teams, the top two defensive teams in the league are meeting in the finals. Both teams also, despite how good they are offensively, do tend to go through um, stretches where their offense gets bogged down. So I think there could be actually some ugly stretches of this series, and I think it will very much be a defensive slot. That out of the way, first thing I'm looking at, and uh, I included this as like uh, an X factor in in our written uh, finals preview, which people can find on the Score app. Is I'm very interested to see 
how effective the Celtics can be in attacking Jordan Poole. And the reason for that is because Poole and Curry are obviously the two players out of the Warriors main rotation players that get hunted or targeted the most. But as I mentioned, I think on the last episode or two episodes ago, I think Curry has improved in us as a defender, or at the very least is better than Jordan Poole enough as a defender and competitive enough as a defender compared to Poole that it's a drastic difference between those two guys. Like Poole is by far the most huntable Warriors defender in their rotation. So the Celtics are a smart team that will hunt that. Like they as an offense, hunt mismatches. That's what they do. And I think they will do that against him. We have seen slowly but surely, I mean, it's not to the point where he's you know in any danger of falling out of the rotation or anything like that. But if you look at his minutes from the beginning of the playoffs to uh, you know the end of the West Finals, Poole's minutes have dipped slightly as the playoffs have gone on. And I don't think that's necessarily a coincidence when you look at the fact that I think as the playoffs have gone on, teams also did a better job of targeting him. If... Jordan Poole's defensive liabilities actually cost him minutes in this series, or at the very least cost the Warriors in terms of the quality of his minutes, I do think that could have a residual effect on their offense, and it could end up being a two-way effect because for as talented as the Warriors are and as much firepower as it seems like their offense has, look, Klay Thompson's actually been really efficient during the playoffs, and you know the fact he is here is inspiring in its own right. Andrew Wiggins, you know, we know has improved and is kind of He's really fit in well in this role. He's really good now attacking as like a catch and shoot guy. And also, I think has found a good groove in terms of deciding when to attack one-on-one and kind of having to create for himself. But between Clay and Wiggins at this point in their careers, I don't think you can like go into any game and fully expect a certain type of consistent offense, at least self-created offense. So as much firepower as here is on the Warriors and as much as the Warriors actually have the most efficient offense in the playoffs... This is still an offense that is very prone to becoming very Curry-reliant. And taking Poole out of the mix, I think, is how you get to that point based on the self-creation issues otherwise on the roster. So if the Celtics can do a good enough job attacking Poole on the defensive end, like I said, either reduce his minutes overall or just reduce the quality of his minutes overall, I think that can also hamper the Warriors' offense. It can make them more Curry-reliant. It just make them less dynamic overall. And so that is, I'm not going to say it's the most important thing in the series, but it is one of the things I am looking for early in the series. Yeah, and I mean, we know this kind of feeds into what I'm going to be watching, you know, the sort of number one thing that I'm most interested in, which is just how different it's going to look at either end of the floor. Because like you mentioned, these are the top two defenses in the league. But the ways that they're going to go about trying to exploit and get around each other's defenses is completely different. So for the Celtics, we know what it's going to be. It's going to be the mismatch hunting thing, right? Like they're going to draw Curry and Poole into those screening actions. And we know what the Warriors are going to do to counter it for the most part. Like they're going to have those guys hedge and recover, I think, as their sort of primary coverage. I think they'll probably do some stuff where like Miami was doing at the tail end of the East finals where they're giving the initial switch, but then they're immediately bringing that double team to get the ball out of Tatum's hands or Jalen Brown's hands. If that's who's running the pick and roll, they'll zone up, which we saw Miami do actually not particularly effectively in the East finals. They have all these ways of trying to protect their weaker defenders and they've been doing it for years. You know, they'll, Give the hard show to stay out of the switch and hopefully to deter the ball handler a little bit, not let him turn the corner, bump him back. 
try and reset, and they will pre-rotate, preventing Boston from getting the easiest possible stuff out of the scenarios where the Warriors are putting two on the ball. Now, Boston is capable of still creating against that just by swinging the ball around and maybe making two or three passes down the chain that create, you know, an open corner three. But I guess, you know, so what's interesting to me at that end of the floor is like, you're going to have Marcus Smart and Derek White being, you know, possibly your primary role men. Because otherwise, I feel like Draymond is probably going to guard Horford. And those are the pick and roll actions that the Warriors are just going to switch. Where like, that's the best way to take away a pick and pop is to switch it, right? And I don't know. And then like with Robert Williams, I mean, that's a question that I have. And I'll I'll leave that for my, my second point, I guess. But like, I think that a lot of the time it's just going to be like Tatum and Brown running pick and roll with, with Derek White and Marcus Smart as the screeners. Because those are the guys that like Golden State's weaker defenders are going to be guarding. So a lot of it might come down to like what those guys can do as short rollers or pick and pop threats. And I'm really curious to see that. And then at the other end, there's not going to be any mismatch hunting from golden state because a, that's not really what they do offensively. And B you can't mismatch hunt against the Celtics defense. There's nobody to hunt. So for them, it's going to be, I mean, we know we know what their offense looks like in terms of its, you know, egalitarian movement stylings and like all the, the weak side activity and the off-ball screams. And I'm really curious to see how the Celtics defend them because I, I've mentioned this before, like the, the Heat offense does a lot of similar things, but obviously this Warriors offense is a lot more dangerous, has a lot more shooting. So some of the stuff that Boston did where, you know, they weren't switching. They were kind of just playing lock and trail on some of the off-ball stuff. And on the on-ball stuff, they're doing deep drop and sometimes going under screens. Like, they can't do that anymore. They're going to have to be switching, like, pretty much all the off-ball stuff. And ball screens, what are they doing? You know, like, they're not dropping anymore, obviously. Are they hard hedging? Are they kind of soft hedging where the big's coming up to the level and then retreating? Are they all-out blitzing? Are they willing to switch their bigs out onto, you know, like Steph and Poole on the perimeter? What are they doing there? Like that's that's probably the thing that I'm most curious to see is like how is Boston going to defend Golden State? And how is Golden State going to attack that Celtics defense and what kind of holes can they poke in it? I think that's that's just like the most interesting, most heated battleground to me of the series. Like that's... That's what I can't wait to watch, I think, is like when the Warriors have the ball, what does it look like? But like, is there taking that into the floor, like Warriors have the ball, Celtics defending, what's the kind of one thing that jumps out to you or that you're most interested to see? It's Jalen Brown's off-ball defense, because as much as you said, and this was, this was my second point, so this is actually, we're segueing to each other perfectly here, but as much as I agree with you saying that the Celtics don't necessarily have a player that you can completely target uh, on defense, or hunt in the ways, you know, I was talking about the Celtics hunting Jordan Poole. And as much as the Warriors don't play that way offensively either, and you talked about the egalitarian offense and all the off-ball movement and the deception and all that, the one guy on the Celtics that struggles defending against that kind of off-ball movement is Jalen Brown. Like, if there is a weakness left in Jalen Brown's game, well, obviously the turnover is too offensively and is, and is handled, but defensively, like if there is a weakness on this Celtics team, it is that Jalen Brown is still prone to 
absolutely fall asleep off the ball. And he is now going up against the team you can least afford to do that to because so much of the way their offense is produced is through all this off-ball cutting movement deception. So to answer your question, that is the one thing I'm most interested in watching when the Warriors have the ball and the Celtics are defending because, look, I'm not saying Jalen Brown's, you know, off-ball defense is going to sink the Celtics overall, but it could it could definitely damage them. And in a series that, you know, I, I picked Warriors in six in that preview. Uh, I, I'm pretty sure you did Warriors in seven, if I remember reading it correctly. Correct. So, you know, in a series that both of us are thinking the margin is going to be very small here. Um, Jalen Brown, yes, falling asleep consistently defensively while the Warriors are kind of whizzing and whirring around him could very much damage the Celtics in ways they can't recover from. Yeah, and I want to point out too, it's not just about like getting back cut, right? Which, mm-hmm. I mean, the Warriors are going to back cut you. That's going to happen to the Celtics. Like they're going to they're gonna top lock uh, or overplay on pin downs and dribble handoffs and they're going to get back cut. Like that's going to happen. It's also about, like, I, I just think, obviously Jalen Brown has like the size, the athleticism, the overall defensive acumen to be an effective helper and like an effective low man. But I just think he's not always a particularly alert low man. Like he's consistently late to rotate uh, or sometimes just outright blows rotations on the backside. And that's where I think it gets dicey for Boston is like when they are putting two on the ball, which I do think is going to happen a fair amount in this series. That's when you start to wonder, okay, like now the Warriors have a four on three or a three on two on the backside. And Jalen Brown is the guy who's caught between like, that's when I start to worry about his off ball defense, I think the most. So I think that's a good point. My other thing that I'm going to be watching is how frequently are these teams playing big? Because I think, as much as small ball is a big part of both these teams identities and both can play that style really effectively. I feel like they've generally been at their best. And certainly on defense, they have been when they size up. And so to go back to what I was saying about Boston defending golden state, I think their best hope of actually containing this warriors offense, which to me means okay, you are taking pains to defend the three-point bombing brigade, like you're defending the three-point line adequately, but you're also not doing that at the expense of your interior defense where you're placing so much attention on the perimeter that they're burning you with the slips and the back cuts and the four-on-threes and all that stuff. Like that's that's kind of the trick of the Warriors' offense. Like, they are a great three-point shooting team. They can obviously kill you from the perimeter. But I feel like they do their like most of their damage inside. Like When that offense really gets rolling, it's when they're playing off of the three-point threat to get all that stuff going to the rim. And the way that I think the Celtics can actually, you know, if not counter that necessarily, then at least keep something of a lid on it is by having like a, a healthy ish Robert Williams on the floor for a decent amount of the time. And I don't know if we're going to get that. Like he was magnificent for parts of that series against Miami, but I think he also looked fairly hobbled toward the end of it. And I feel like that's just a huge swing factor here. And, you know, so if here's the thing, like the, the Celtics also 
are way better offensively when they have Horford at the five. They have been in the playoffs anyway. And I do think that's skewed a little bit by those last couple of games against Miami, where I feel like Rob Williams just like didn't have a ton of lift, like wasn't actually a role threat and wasn't giving them anything at that end of the floor. But I do think, you know, especially against this Warriors defense, uh, the ability to spread them out and do the mismatch hunting thing, like with a spaced floor is going to be important. But in terms of the defense, like they're so hard to score on when they have Horford and Rob Williams out there together. They got a 96.7 defensive rating in the playoffs so far with that two big look. And I think in terms of what they want to do with the ball screen defense, it's going to be way easier to do any of those things, whether it's switching or hedging or blitzing when they have the two bigs out there. Like you think about, okay, I imagine Horford guards Draymond and Rob Williams guards Looney to start. That's my feeling. So let's say they come up, they run the pick and roll with Horford, uh, with Draymond, Horford hedges or Horford switches. I don't know, but like whether it's you're giving up a four on three with Draymond slipping or you're giving up whatever Steph can do in like in a switch with Al Horford, you very much want to have the other rim protector behind him who can clean some of that stuff up on the backside. So that's, that's why I wonder how much, how much of that too big look do we see from Boston? And then how much of like the loony, how much of loony do we see from golden state? Like, well, and, I think all these things are interconnected as well because even what I was talking about with pool, like pool is also important for them in terms of their their optimal, if you want to call it, their best lineup, right? Their most devastating lineup numbers wise, which is their small look. So even in terms of if if they do want to try to get Robert Williams off the floor from a matchup perspective, well, you could go small and obviously replace Looney with Jordan Poole, but you're now giving the Celtics a guy that they can very, a Celtics offense that hunts mismatches, a guy they can very easily find mismatches against. Um, so I think like all these things are so interconnected to me and it, it makes it more fascinating. Like um, I made the note too in our preview, like if, if the Warriors don't like the way the Celtics are going after Poole, but they also don't, like the way Looney is performing against that Celtics front court. And I know you, you, uh, we were talking off air last week about what you think the Celtics front court could do to Kevon Looney. It's like, does Steve Kerr see if Jonathan Kaminga is ready for the bright lights and, mm. and throw him out there and, and, and see what he can give them? Like uh, the possibilities are really fascinating, but I think the way all these things are interconnected are also really fascinating in this matchup. Yeah. And like, are they willing to switch Looney? You know, if, if the Celtics are running more of the like conventional pick and roll with like their big guys as screeners, is Looney switching on to Tatum the way that he was switching on to Luca? Because, you know, Tatum to me has like a little bit more North South juice than Luca does. And like, I think you maybe worry about that switch a tad bit more against him uh, because he is, I think he's better than Luca at getting to the rim. So that makes having your rim protector out on the perimeter a little bit more damaging. So I'm curious to see if they're as comfortable giving that switch as they were against the Mavs. But Looney has been really good for them. And so, you know, I was talking about how both these teams have been at their best defensively when they play big. They've been seven points per hundred possessions better on defense with Looney and Draymond out there together than they have with Draymond at the five. And way better on the boards, which is maybe the most important thing. Like with Looney and Draymond both out there, they have a 32% offensive rebound rate and a 55% rebound rate overall. 
And I mean, we saw it like at the, at the tail end of that Grizzlies series, that was kind of how they turned it around. Like that was how they won that game six. Looney played 35 minutes, grabbed 23 rebounds or something crazy like that. In a series that the numbers suggested they should have been devoured on the glass. It went the opposite way in large part because of Looney and Draymond sharing the court. And then he stuck in the rotation and continued to play big minutes and played a huge role in that Dallas series. He was incredible in that Dallas series. So you have these two teams that like, again, like their identities sort of skew towards small ball and, and you think of them being at their best when they're playing small, but I don't know if that's necessarily true. And so I'm very curious to see how much big ball we see both of them playing and, and how much guys like Rob Williams and Looney factor into the outcome here. Um, so yeah, that's, I guess the four big things that we're going to be watching for in the series. There's a lot more that we could have talked about, but again, it's the series is going to start tomorrow night. So we will have plenty to talk about in the immediate aftermath of that. We may be back on Friday to do a game one, a quick game one reaction pod, but we're not a hundred percent sure about that. So we don't want to overpromise, but, uh, Depending on how things shake out, we may be back to uh, to just break that game down in a little bit of detail. But for now, I think we're going to leave this all there. And you know what? Actually, a couple things quick. Um, one, because you had mentioned off the air, you had sent me a text uh, joking that Al Horford should actually be the Time Lord and not Robert Williams <laughs> because of how he's turned back the clock. Yeah. I wanted to mention uh, Al Horford turned 36 on Friday, the day after game one. Um, and also I, people have probably seen this stat floating around, but just awesome to see him finally get over the hump and get to the finals. He, his 141 games played in the playoffs, playoff games played before making the finals was an NBA record. No player in the 76, I know they had the 75th anniversary season this year, but it's actually the 76th season in NBA history. No player in the 76 year history of the NBA had played as many playoff games without making the finals as Al Horford. So shout out Al Horford, who's also going to be 36 on Friday, Joe Wolfon's Time Lord. Um, and then the other thing I just wanted to mention, because I thought it was fascinating and starting to look at numbers for this series, but who do you think has played the most minutes in the playoffs for the Warriors? Sorry, this year or ever? This year, this year, this season. Most minutes for the Warriors this season, Wiggins, I guess? Dude, it's Clay. Oh, Clay. Good. I was shocked. I mean, it, it has nothing to do with what we're talking about today. I just thought it was a an interesting a bit of trivia. It's because of, you know, the injuries he's coming off of, like how long it took him them to even get him back in the lineup, let him loan, get him back to speed. Mm-hmm. And as well as he's played for them, I don't think anyone is fooled into believing like he is what he once was, obviously, understandably so. But anyway, I, I just thought it was kind of shocking to see that he's actually played more minutes than any other warrior in this playoff run. That is crazy. Good for Clay, man. I mean, I'm just really, really happy for that dude. This two and a half year layoff culminates in him making it back to the finals with a a game five performance in which he was vintage Clay, man. We hit what? Eight threes set after the game that he should have hit 10. Yeah. Just amazing. Um, Yeah. One more thing, just like in terms of, in terms of the Celtics defense and the Warriors offense, I was thinking about this became clear to me and not that it wasn't like clear before, but it really crystallized for me in the Mavs series, how like you just have to be a good screen navigating team to really effectively defend the Warriors. And I think that was like the biggest difference that I saw between the Memphis series and the Dallas series in that it's always okay. So like, 
the ball is going to swing to Draymond and he's going to be wide open because he's the guy you help off of like defenses, ignore him. His guy sags way off. And what the warriors love to do is sort of take advantage of his anti-gravity and have him pivot into those dribble handoffs. And there are so many times and it's so practiced where the ball swings to him and they get a movement shooter in his vicinity so quickly and he is able to set like such a solid screen kind of on the fly like that, that the ball finding him on the perimeter is almost the same as it finding like a wide open, actually good warrior shooter on the perimeter. Like that's how quickly they turn it around. And the Grizzlies were just so good at snuffing that stuff out because of how good they were at staying attached and getting around those screens. And I feel like the Celtics can do that same thing. Whereas like the Mavs just weren't as good at that. Like they got killed by those actions way more than Memphis did. And also, I mean, like part of the reason that I wonder so much about like Rob Williams and his health and his availability is because in terms of the stuff that I was saying about like being able to protect the rim, like Jaron Jackson was able to do that against the Warriors as well. And that was a big part of why. I think that the Grizzlies had the most success of any team that's played the Warriors in this postseason at defending them. So it's lots of stuff that I'm interested to see that could uh, that could swing either way. But you mentioned I, I took Warriors in seven, even though I've been saying all this time that I kind of had Boston ahead of them in the pecking order. I I flipped my pick after watching those last two games against Miami, and you know how, it was just hard for me. You know how much I hate to waffle, but I just there's like a trust factor that I feel like I have with Golden State that I don't with Boston. And as much as I look at it, I'm like, oh, the Warriors actually have a couple weak spots you can attack on defense and the Celtics don't. I still have more faith in the Warriors offense than I do in Boston's offense. So exactly. So I wound up switching my pick Warriors in seven. You said you had Warriors in six. That can lead me to I don't know if you have a, a fan shout out banked for this week, but I had one I wanted to give to sensei who is a commenter on soundcloud i believe his name is raymond castro but he goes by sensei on soundcloud he commented on our last one which was when we were kind of looking ahead to a a celtics warriors matchup that hadn't materialized yet and i was saying that i would give the celtics the nod and he said i love you guys but joe taking the celtics over the dubs in the finals is just blasphemous the celtics are too young and still fall prey to bad habits. I admit they're a scary team, and it will be a great matchup, but it's Warriors in six. So, Sensei, shout out to you. I'm not going to say that you played a part in changing my pick, but <laughs> uh, I hope that you're satisfied that uh, I now have come around to uh, to seeing the light. Cool. Love it. Uh, shout out as well. Sean Trimstra. Trimstra. I hope we're pronouncing that correct. T-R-I-E-M-S. T-R-A, goes by Trimmy88 on Twitter. Uh, Talked to him via Twitter DMs a few weeks ago. He says he's been listening to us from what he thinks is just about the beginning of this show uh, a few years ago now, almost four years ago now, I want to say. He is in Stratford, Ontario, Canada. So uh, shout shout out Stratford. Shout out Shakespeare and Theater and Justin Bieber and, uh, and Sean. Thanks, Sean. Thanks, Sensei, Raymond, for being loyal listeners. Usual call out. Hit us up on social, email, Instagram. Uh, let us know where you're listening from, how long you've been listening, and we will get you a shout out on a future episode. Yes, indeed. Thank you all for listening. As always, 
We will talk to you all soon, possibly on Friday or possibly early next week. But uh, until then, enjoy game one of the finals. For Joseph Cacharo, I'm Joe Wolfon. Pound the Rock. Thank you.